Hey, welcome to the past. Because <laughs> we had it. Oh, nice. It's a good time machine. A German man broke a weird world record by assembling a Mr. Potato Head in 12.11 seconds while blindfolded. Where at? I assume in Germany. Okay, fair enough. Does that change? Does that change the... I, I don't know. The geographical location means that you could assemble a Mr. Potato Head faster. Do you think all the pieces were in the little cubby hole on the ass of the Mr. Potato Head and you had to pull them all out? or? I would say you're going from the factory setup <laughs> to complete. So when you said a German man, I don't. I was trying to figure out what society is going to host this event or or if we, he just freelance. <laughs> it's funnier too. It would have been way better if I'd have been like a German man in Wichita, Kansas. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Broke a weird world record. I don't know. I don't know what the significance was, but I, I wondered, you know, who's, what culture really gets behind an event like this? Or was this just something he's doing on his own? And I don't know. I feel like people continuously break their own world, world records. Well, yeah. On purpose of these weird, bizarre things. They're like, nobody's going to take this one from me. Mm. I, I would have to invent something too that. I was the first person to do, so I was the best at it. You know, some, yeah, some yeah. established is tough. Nobody can deny it. Right. An Arkansas woman pled not guilty to selling over 20 boxes of stolen human body parts. She was hired to cremate medical school corpses, but she decided to harvest the organs, skin, genitalia, whatever, and sold these to a dude she met on Facebook in a group called Oddities with an unremarkable profit of about $11,000. Huh. That's not a lot. It seemed like that was probably a lot of work for that much money. You know what I mean? Yeah. I So I looked at this a little more and somebody had reported this guy for having like buckets of human skin or something in his basement. This is a really weird story. He, he got indicted too, but it's just like a Mary Shelley book, man. This yeah. is like Frankenstein stuff. Yeah, no. Well, I guess that's why the profit seems low because it's not when you say harvesting organs, you know, your mind jumps to usable yeah oh, these are not the case this is for oddities or something else you know they're not yeah, stealing they're just, you're not waking up in a tub of ice missing a kidney no this is everything's already past its expiration date yeah it's on jars and some yeah. weird guy's shelf in his basement no, i don't know if it's well, better or worse so a couple of dudes in china got into a dispute over some trees i can't really remember what it was like one guy cut down trees the other guy wasn't happy they were hauled off by one of the guy's wives they ended up getting they ended up fighting over this pretty aggressively and so one of the men decided that to get revenge he was going to sneak into the other man's chicken coop at night and scare his chickens by shining a flashlight in their face. 500 of them run into the corner of the room and trample each other and they all die. This guy gets taken to court over this and he was ordered to pay like $430 in American money. That's what it translates to. And unhappy with the results of the verdict, he decides he's going to sneak back into the property and use the same method, causing another 640 chickens to trample each other to death. Upon returning to court, the man was sentenced to six months in prison and one year of probation. Does that really work? I don't know. I thought about that when I read this. That seems extreme. There had to be a last chicken standing, you know? That's what I, like, how could the last one succumb to his injuries finally? Yeah. He went out on his shield. The last one. You got to go. (laughs) The last one of Falhalla. Uh, Okay. (laughs) So stupid. (laughs) All right. Oh, all right. All right. Yeah. That was that, that's better than it felt early on. <laughs> Valhalla. <laughs> yeah. I'm not proud of it. So the first story I want to tell you today is of Sigurd the Mighty. 
Uh, two main sources of Sigurd's story are the Heimskringla, which is an assortment of sagas about Swedish and Norwegian kings, and the Orkneyinga sagas, which tells the history of the Orkney and Shetland Islands in Scotland. Anyways, when the Norwegian kingdoms were first united around 872, after the Battle of Hafsfjord, exiled Viking population grew in Orkney and Shetland. The now first king of Norway, Harald Fairhair, with the assistance of Roggenvold Eistinsson, managed to eliminate this disruptive mass of pirate Vikings. However, Roggenvald's son Ivar was killed in the process. For his efforts and loss, King Fairhair granted him the islands, along with the title of Jarl. After getting the approval from the king, Roggenvald decided that he wanted to return to Norway and passes the islands and the title of Jarl to his brother Sigurd Eistinsson. So I, before I get back to Sigurd's story, I got a side note here that Roggenvald is eventually killed by Fairhair's son, Halfdan, who is later killed in vengeful fashion by Roggenvald's son. Wow, that's like Game of Thrones. So back to Sigurd, whom then eventually teams up with a Viking chieftain named Thorstein the Red, conquers a large part of northern Scotland, solidifying himself in history and earning the sweet, sweet, juicy title of the Mighty. Yep. Nearing the end of his reign, Jarl Mighty challenges Male Bricked the Bucktooth who was likely Jarl of Moray at the time, to a 40-dude versus 40-dude fight to the death to settle their differences. But, in deceitful fashion, Sigurd showed up fucking 80 deep. I'm sure you could guess who won. Well, you got the mighty versus the bucktooth. It already seems like a disadvantage is there, yeah. to be fair. After the battle, Sigurd then had the heads of his enemies chopped off and fashioned to the saddles of his men's horses as trophies of victory, claiming Mr. Bucktooth's head for his own gross hood ornament. <laughs> During their march home with their chests out and their chins up, the severed heads of their enemies bobbling around on the saddles, the giant buck teeth still poking at a male's head grazed the leg of Sigurd, leading to a pretty nasty infection, and he eventually became septic, dying before he could even make it home to the islands. So this guy wins a fight, chops a dude's head off, but still manages to meet his demise the teeth of a man who he had already slain and decapitated. Man, how do you say that? Do you posthumously then uh, change his moniker to, you know, I mean, he doesn't, he does not quit. Yeah. Male bricked the buck tooth slayer of Sigurd the Mighty. Yeah. He didn't hear no bell. What a fighter. So now to the meat and potatoes. Main story of the day. And it's one with great historical impact to boot. The story of Yuri Gagarin. He was born in 1934 and his parents worked on a Sovkas, which was a state owned farm in the Soviet Union. His father as a carpenter and his mother as a dairy farmer. He had two older siblings, one sister and one brother, and one younger brother. By the time Yuri was born, his brother was about 10 years old at the time and was already working cattle. And his sister assumed the responsibility of taking care of Yuri and eventually his younger brother while the rest of the family worked. Then the German occupation of World War II happened. The Nazi army captured their village in 1941, when Yuri was around seven years old, I think. The Nazis burned down the school and many other houses in the village and forced the residents to work the farms to feed the occupying forces. Those who refused to do so would be beaten and sent off to concentration camps. So a Nazi officer would eventually set up shop in their own home, and allowing them to make a 10 foot by 10 foot mud hut in the field behind their former house, where they would <laughs> reside for nearly two years. Holy After another Nazi officer, whom the village children referred to as the devil, tried to hang Yuri's younger brother from an apple tree with his own scarf, Yuri became a bit of a saboteur filling tank batteries that needed to be recharged with soil and mixing up some of the chemicals that were required for this process in random fashion. Eventually, his two older siblings were deported by the Germans to work in slave camps in Poland that they would eventually escape from and were found by Soviet soldiers later returning home after the war ended in 1945. 
However, in their absence, the family believed them to be dead and were grief-stricken. Yuri refused to work and was beaten by Nazi soldiers, landing him in the hospital where he would eventually work as an orderly, trying to help others. His mother was also hospitalized after a Nazi soldier sliced her leg open with a scythe. Eventually, the Soviet army pushed the Nazis out of the family's home village in 1944, and Yuri assisted them in locating mines the Germans had hidden. So, yeah, he's a little salty. Yeah, he's... What do you have against these guys? They never hurt you. Well, they did try and hang my little brother with his own scarf and chopped my mom's leg off almost. Yeah, after beating the shit out of me, too. Yeah. So, in 1946, the family decides to relocate, and Yuri would pick education back up. (laughs) It was here in a small school, taught by a local woman who volunteered to educate the youth, that Yuri learned to read. Eventually, a former Soviet airman would join the teaching team, bringing in math and science to Yuri, quickly becoming his favorite subjects. He would go on to begin an apprenticeship as a foundryman at a steel plant and also enroll in a vocational program for youth workers. He would graduate with honors and was selected for further training and began studying tractors. He also volunteered for weekend training at the local flying club as a Soviet air cadet, fueling his deep fascination with aeroplanes, originating after he witnessed one crash in the occupied village when he was a child. Wow. In 1955, he was accepted into an Air Force pilot school in Orenburg and began his training in aircraft that he was familiar with from his training in the flying club, graduating from that craft and moving on to another, the MIG-15. He struggled to land this aircraft twice, nearly being dismissed from the program. However, his commander gave him another chance, and his instructor gave him a cushion to sit on to improve his view from the cockpit, landing the aircraft successfully, graduated the course, and began flying solo. After logging nearly 167 hours of flight time, he was branded a lieutenant in the Soviet Air Force, graduating from flight school the very next day, and was posted near the border of Norway for a two-year assignment, and eventually earned the title of military pilot third class. So after the launch of Luna 3 was successful, which was the first mission to photograph the far side of the moon, Yuri expressed interest in space exploration. After being endorsed and recommendations coming from his superiors, he was evaluated by Medical Commission for qualification to the Soviet space program. Physical and psychological testing began, with required physical traits of candidates being no heavier than 159 pounds, no taller than 5 foot 7, and between the age range of 25 to 30. With a total of 154 candidates, military physicians chose 29, with only 20 being approved by the Soviet government. Thus began the vigorous training, alongside parachute training, and each candidate completed 40 to 50 jumps, and Yuri quickly became the favorite for a space mission amongst his peers. When asked to vote for someone besides themselves to be the first to fly, all but three chose Gagarin. He was believed to be very focused and demanding of himself and others when necessary. That's pretty awesome. You're standing out amongst those 20. You know, you must be an <clears throat> obvious, overwhelming choice if, if there's only three that didn't pick you. You yeah. know, yeah, there's going to be a handful no matter what you did. But that just shows you're probably n- number two is not close. You know, there's no debate. Pretty impressive. He was then further chosen for an accelerated training group called the Vanguard Six, from who the first cosmonauts would be chosen. Two of them would be injured during training and replaced, one from internal damage during an 8G centrifuge test, another displacing a vertebrae after hitting his head diving into a lake near the training facility. (laughs) (laughs) His his wasn't work-related, was it? No, it doesn't sound like it. We are not covering this. You were hammered yesterday. (laughs) You know, one day off the base and we can't trust you for anything. You can't go to space. No. Oh my gosh. You know, what a, what a, the other, the, I just mean the conversation with those two went very differently. You know, when the guy's internal organs rupture due to the G forces of your training facility, you're like, listen, 
we've got a package set up. We are really sorry. This is we set up a, you know, scholarship foundation for the kids. Not a dollar out of your pocket on that wheelchair. Okay. Who the next guy who then just got shit housed on Sunday and dove into an eight inch water uh, lake under a rock. Yeah. A lot of the reading I did here, I don't know if any of these guys really knew that they were going to go to space. The Soviet government never really disclosed yeah. that they were actually recruiting to send somebody to space. Oh, to them even? Yeah. To the participants either? I think they, it was implied to a degree, but it was never yeah. openly said to them. Right. So once training was completed, Yuri was the clear favorite to become the first man in space and was viewed as pretty much the first string starter with his respective team arranged in the form of substitution if anything were to change. The Vostok program is now reality. However, the name of this endeavor is kept a secret by the Soviets until Yuri's mission was in full swing, but we'll get to that. First, let's discuss the series of launches leading up to this historical moment. Six launches were held before the Soviets could approve sending a human into orbit. First was on July 28, 1960. Spacecraft contained two dogs, both of whom were killed when the rocket exploded shortly after liftoff. Mm. The second on August 19th, carrying two more dogs named Belka and Strelka and also some mice, insects, and even strips of human skin. Yes, why has everybody got pockets of skin everywhere in this episode? It seems weird, they're just laying around. Hmm. You're like, yeah, throw a couple of these in there, too. I said, just the essentials, Chaz, you know? I don't have room for your extra bucket of skin. You get your stamp collection, too? It's the grandpa of the guy from that oddity's Facebook page. (laughs) (laughs) See how these all tie together? Not an accident. So during the 26-hour spaceflight, cameras on board the craft reported images of Belka vomiting, leading to concerns for the health of the animals. However, both dogs were recovered successfully and in good health, making Belka and Strelka the first living beings to ever be recovered from orbit. Due to a prototype rocket exploding on a launch pad at the Cosmodrome, killing over 100 people in what is known as the Nedelin Catastrophe, the third launch wasn't until December 1st of 1960. The launch was successful, however, after 24 hours, the engines malfunctioned and the re-entry course changed, meaning the spacecraft would not land on Soviet territory. Hmm. This prompted them to activate a self-destruct system, destroying both dogs and the craft. But the press unfortunately reported that the loss was due to incorrect altitude, destroying the cab upon re-entry. Had this worked out and then the human trial went the same way, you don't think they would have thrown the same switch with dudes in there? Guaranteed. So the fourth launch didn't even make it to orbit. The third stage of the launch system malfunctioned and the emergency escape systems were activated but failed. In the event of an unscheduled return, the craft was to eject the dogs and self-destruct. The ejection seats failed and the self-destruct system shorted out. The animals returned to Earth inside the intact capsule from suborbital heights. Craft also had a backup self-destruct set to 60 hours. And the Soviets set out quickly to retrieve the capsule. Found near the end of daylight in negative 40 degree temperatures with the windows frosted over, they reported no signs of life. With insufficient daylight to open the capsule or disarm the self-destruct, they would have to wait until morning. When they opened the capsule the next day, they could hear barking, and both dogs were recovered alive. The spacecraft was returned to Moscow a few weeks later, but boy, are they not doing very good so far. What, when did they get to monkeys? They didn't. Well, yeah, we, they we went from monkeys? dogs to people. They went from dogs to mannequins to people. Yeah, the dogs are like, hmm. Yeah. Uh, I see. I see how it's going to be. So the final two uncrewed missions used the same spacecraft designed for the actual crewed human single orbital spaceflight missions. They would send a single dog, a life-size mannequin, and a functioning spacesuit and still be outfitted with the self-destruction system, though. The first was launched on March 9th, 1961. 
lasted 106 minutes, orbited the planet once, re-entered the atmosphere, ejected the mannequin who parachuted down, the capsule also deployed a landing parachute, and the dog was retrieved alive. A complete success. Huh. Before the second launch, an accident occurred and killed a cosmonaut candidate, Valentin Bondarenko. He was 10 days into a 15-day endurance experiment in a low-pressure altitude chamber, where the altitude was at least 50% oxygen. Having completed work for the day, Valentin cleaned his skin with an alcohol-soaked cotton ball while he was making a cup of tea. When he attempted to discard the cotton ball, it landed on the hot plate that he was using to brew said cup of tea. Cotton ignited, and he attempted to extinguish the fire with the sleeves of his woolen coveralls, which also ignited in the oxygen-rich environment. Oh, yeah, okay. And due to the pressure difference, it took the watching doctor almost half an hour to open the door. By then, Valentin's clothes had burned until almost all of the oxygen in the room was used up, suffering third-degree burns over most of his body. Supposedly, Yuri spent several hours at the hospital as the death watch officer, and 16 hours after being burned, Bondarenko died of shock. His death and any involvement in the Cosmonaut Corp was concealed by the Soviets until the 1980s. He's in this pressurized vessel cranking up the O2. That makes sense. So, yeah, it was everything's burning high. I don't know what the standard is, you know, walking around air. 21.5. Is that right? Mm-hmm. I think it's like 21.9, but we can go down to 19 or so, and you're still good. Usually we'd have an alarm that would go off at about 19.5. That's actually a piece of information I didn't think about looking up when I wrote this. I'm glad you have that. Yeah, that's awesome. So the second uncrewed mission launched two days after his death. Again, carrying a dog and a mannequin. Again, it was a complete success. And the final steps required to green light approval for human crewed launch was there. So on April 12th, 1961, the Vostok 1 left Earth. Supposedly without a self-destruction system, and here was 27-year-old Yuri Gagarin, strapped into a tiny capsule, fashioned to the top of a ballistic missile originally designed to carry a warhead, <laughs> lifting him into orbit. After spinning somewhere between 106 and 108 minutes, traveling at speeds of 300 miles per minute, nearly 200 miles above the surface of the planet, he was set to come home. But during re-entry, I believe right around above Egypt, commands were sent for the service module to separate from the re-entry module but it remained attached, hung up into a bundle of wires, causing the spacecraft to begin spinning aggressively before finally completing the separation. Around 4.3 miles from the surface, the hatch is released and Yuri is ejected from the capsule, releasing his parachute, which the capsule also did around 8,200 feet. They both made it back safely, although largely off course. A local farmer and her granddaughter were planting potatoes when they noticed a bright orange man with a bubble helmet approaching dragging a parachute behind him initially afraid of him yuri settled their fears by stating don't be afraid i am soviet citizen like you who has descended from space and i must find a telephone to call moscow <laughs> <laughs> he returned to the planet a hero of the soviets they had won the race to space and thus the race to the moon was born yuri supposedly carried a makarov nine millimeter pistol to space just in case he were to land in hostile territory or to defend himself against the bears and wolves if he were to land in the Russian forest. Since, unlike the Americans, Russian landed on land yeah. when they came back from space. That's crazy. So on March 27th, 1968, Yuri and another flight instructor died in a plane crash surrounded by speculation and conspiracy. Multiple investigations were conducted. However, the exact events that transpired are still unknown to this day. That's crazy. It would eventually go on to name his hometown Gagarin. That's awesome. In honor That's of him. That's a cool story, yeah. 
So and he was living in a mud hut behind his occupied childhood home. And then he becomes the first man in space. Fucking remarkable. Yeah. Absolutely remarkable. And uh, I can't get my kitchen clean, you know? Yeah. I got up this morning and wrote most of this story in my boxers. <laughs> I feel like that's a success, by the way. But that level of aspiration is beyond me. You know what I mean? I know. So that's the story, man. That's the story of the first cosmonauts, the first man in space. Oh, that's pretty amazing. So I have one more small side story that I wrote today also. I figured you would get a kick out of this one. So Frank Hayes passed away at the age of 22. He was a horse trainer and a stableman. He stepped into the role of a jockey in 1923 at the Belmont Park racetrack in New York. He slimmed down from 142 to 130. And he made his debut on a horse named Sweet Kiss. He ended up finishing the race in first place. And when the race officials and the owner of the horse ran out to congratulate him, they realized that he was dead. He had a heart attack near the end of the race. <laughs> Theory is this was due to the weight loss. And he remained in the saddle the whole time. Oh, wow. The horse never raced again. And he is, to this day, the only jockey to win a race after death. <laughs> My spirit may have departed. But my corpse is going to bounce over that finish line first. Still a winner. Yeah. Still a winner. If you ain't first, you're last. Well, Sonny, do you have any updates on your story? I don't. No? No. I don't want to let the cat out of the bag. I'm trying to taper it down into a manageable amount of information about the scariest man alive, and it's difficult, so. But in the meantime, this has been the Fundamentals of Nonsense, and uh, we love you both, or whatever. Mm-hmm.